Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. So, Kimberly, we had a big voting rights argument this week, and we also got Justice Barrett's first opinion in an argued case. Later, we're going to talk to an expert about this voting case. But first, let's talk about this opinion. What do you say? Let's do it. Uh, A seven to two opinion, right? A little abnormal for a new justice. Right. Usually they roll them out with something lighter, something unanimous that happened at least recently with Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But in this case, United States Fish and Wildlife Service against Sierra Club, it was a FOIA case. Justice Barrett's first opinion, we had Justices Breyer and Sotomayor dissenting. So something a little different for Barrett's first outing in an argued opinion. It's about the deliberative process privilege. Are you still listening? That's something that can basically stop the government from having to disclose certain information. And to make a long story short, it was the government winning this case with the majority saying they didn't have to disclose information about draft biological opinions. Right. So this came in the context of uh, an environmental statute. But of course, this isn't going to be limited to the EPA. Um, We'll apply to other agencies. And we also got another opinion, uh, Pareda versus Wilkinson. Um, And this was an immigration case, the first one um, of this term after a really immigration heavy term last year. Uh, This one came down along uh, ideological lines, as these cases often do. Uh, Count was five to three with Justice Barrett sitting that one out. So the outcome here was a little surprising after um, oral arguments, uh, just because the justices seemed really concerned um, about the harsh consequences that could come from a case like this. So what's at issue is um, discretionary relief from deportation um, for immigrants who came to the country illegally, but have been in the country for a long time, um, such that deporting them would be harmful to U.S. citizens. So here we have a Mexican national, Pareda, who was in the country country for 25 years, got married, had kids. One is a DACA recipient, another is a U.S. citizen. Um, And he was asking the court to allow him to ask the executive branch to consider uh, this relief. But the Supreme Court said, nope, you can't even ask. Um, So it's a harsh uh, ruling. Um, Justices knew that going into it. And I'm sure we'll see more ideological breakdowns in these immigration cases going forward. Don't tell the justices that. They don't like it when you talk about how they're divided. They're usually not. So sorry about that. So I don't know. You want to talk about uh, the Arizona case? Sure. Kimberly, can you give us a little intro before we bring on our guest? Sure. So uh, we talked about this case a little bit uh, in our sneak peek. It's a voting rights case asking the court to review a Ninth Circuit ruling, which found that two Arizona voting restrictions were unconstitutional because they discriminated against minority voters. So we're going to bring on our guests to chat about those uh, provisions and also um, some of the impacts that the case could have in the future. Joining us today is Derek Muller, an election law professor at the University of Iowa. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me. So I want to talk a little bit about the particular provisions at issue in this case. But first, I want to talk about why this case might be important outside of the Grand Canyon State. And I was just hoping that you could start us off with why the provision is at issue here, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, has become more important in recent years. Right. So Section 2, you know, originally, as it was understood in, as a part of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, um, essentially restated the provisions of the 15th Amendment and ensure that um, 
uh, everyone has the right to vote regardless of, of race, color, previous condition of servitude. Um, but a, a couple of things have happened that sort of changed the outlook on that. One is in the 80s, Congress amended the statute to, to very much focus on outcomes, right? That is to, to say that, that uh, whether or not voting rules have the effect of denying you the opportunity of fully participating in the process. And, and that effect versus opportunity is language the, that, that came out in oral argument on this case. But the second thing is that uh, in, in 2013, the Supreme Court in Shelby County versus Holder um, addressed Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act and specifically the Section 4's coverage formula about which jurisdictions had to submit their election laws to Congress to get approved before they could take effect. And while this affected a handful of states, including Arizona, um, you know, it, when the Supreme Court said that that was an unconstitutional exercise of Congress's authority, um, Section 5 no longer applied to a number of states. And so litigants were looking for alternative avenues. And they looked at Section 2, which had mostly been used in redistricting cases, uh, to say maybe this is a tool that we could use at our disposal for, for future cases. And, you know, that's, you know, one of the things that the justices are considering, you know, whether or not these kinds of claims can be brought um, under this particular provision. And even if so, how to apply uh, the test. Um, and, I do want to talk to you about some of the options that the court has in front of it, but let's chat about the two provisions. Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, both of them at issue here? Yeah, so two different statutes, um, and, and to be frank, you know, I think a, a little bit ordinary in some respects, right? That there are things that are in a number of other jurisdictions. One is an out of precinct uh, policy regarding voters who cast a vote at a precinct that they are not assigned to. So like in a lot of places in the United States, you're assigned to a precinct. Not every place. A lot of places are moving toward more consolidated vote centers. But uh, in Arizona, if you show up and cast a vote at, at, a, at a precinct where you're not registered, they'll say, we'd like you to go to your own your, your precinct, if not, will let you cast a provisional ballot and we'll check the roster at the end of the day, see if you should have been uh, uh, on the roster. And if you aren't, uh, we won't count your vote. And litigants said, well, at least count the vote for the statewide offices, right, which are senator, governor, president, uh, count those ballot votes, but not everything else on the ballot. So that was that, that's one challenge. And this is a rule that's been on the books, I think, since since Arizona was a territory. So it's also a, a very old statute. Um, the other is a recent statute enacted uh, dealing with uh, third party ballot collection or sometimes called uh, bans on ballot harvesting. Um, and this is saying we are concerned as the Arizona legislature about the risk of fraud or voter intimidation from uh, a third party, a stranger, a political operative, picking up your ballot, your absentee ballot at your home uh, and collecting it. They could destroy it. They could alter it. So we're going to limit the class of people who can do that. Immediate family, household members, postal workers, county government officials, things like that. Um, and, and so designing to, to narrow that. So that's a recent enactment. Again, it, it's on the books in, in a few states. Um, but but the allegations in Arizona where the litigants said, listen, especially on tribal reservations where mail, uh, mail access is uh, a little bit more difficult and challenging, we would sometimes rely upon others to collect those ballots. So those are the two sort of issues, uh, two statutes at, at issue in this case. And I wonder what you think about this being those two provisions. Um, you mentioned that, you know, they're kind of normal provisions. 
What do you think of these two provisions being the test case? I mean, um, you know, here we talked about how the Supreme Court is going to set the standard, and these really aren't the kinds of provisions um, that, you know, pro-voting rights advocates have really gone after as aggressively as, as some other provisions. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think I, I think the, the bound ballot harvesting has gotten a little bit more attention. It's something that Republicans have been more focused on and fixated on. It's something that I think, especially for Native Americans, we think about more as sort of having maybe more of an impact. So there, there's that, that sort of piece. And then there's the, the out-of-precinct out of voting where, you know, we've moved away from precinct voting in some places, but there's still the concern like maybe states like Arizona need to provide more opportunities, more flexibility. So there is a sense in which, um, if you look at some of the litigants in this case, like was this just a case of, of um, plaintiff overreach, right? These were really led by the Democratic Party in filing these lawsuits. They lost the district court and they lost the Ninth Circuit, actually, but it was the Ninth Circuit on banc. Um, that convened and heard this decision and essentially found that both statutes, uh, you know, were uh, ran afoul of the of Section Two of the Voting Rights Act. So, you know, th- there is a narrative to think about. Like, it, what, were these the wrong cases for the plaintiff to be pushing all the way, or was this the wrong decision from the Ninth Circuit on Bonk to sort of set up and tee up before the Supreme Court, at least on these two narrow issues? So, it is something I think that that I think made some of the justices uncomfortable thinking about. Um, some of these statutes that are on the books in a number of other jurisdictions. Right. And, um, you know, we got word that the Biden administration even said that these two provisions were constitutional. Of course, they they disagree with the Trump administration on the standard, but we don't know what that what they think the standard is yet. <laughs> so yeah, stay was, tuned. Yeah. And there is a, yeah, a part in which, whether we say it's the Department of Justice as an institution or whatever, I was pretty surprised that the Biden administration, while while withdrawing that sort of uh, the, the the sort of bigger question about what Section Two means, they said, "Yeah, both of these things we think don't violate Section Two in a way of maybe trying to appease some of the justices who might be uncomfortable with the result." I don't know. I mean, is there any doubt, though, whatever the impact these things have, that these provisions, if they're enforced, are more helpful on the whole to Republicans than to Democrats? Just to kind of set that backdrop, that's the case, right? <sighs> I, yeah, I mean, let me, I'll, I'll answer that in two ways. Uh, the, the first is there's no question Republicans think it helps them to have these statutes in the books and Democrats think it hurts them. Um, and that's where the, that's where the, the, the challenges are, arise. And whether we think that's, uh, whether it's Republicans who say, well, this is because it's keeping out fraudulent ballots or it's improving the integrity of the process or Democrats who say this is sort of suppressing a group of voters who would otherwise be able to cast votes, you know, that, that I think has been the setup in these debates going forward. It's like an empirical question. It's it's unclear how this plays out. There's clearly some racial disparity, which we can get to into, into the statistics about that. But, you know, for a long time until until COVID, the, the assumption was things like absentee balloting was helpful to Republicans. It was military and senior citizens and, and efforts to collect those things were helpful to them. Um, so when you have a ban on ballot harvesting, what is that? Are you unable to help senior citizens who couldn't otherwise get to the post office and collect and mail those ballots who are Republican Democrat? So there's, there's, in my judgment, like really interesting actual empirical questions out here about how this all plays out. Now, in terms of the racial disparity, and we can think about race as a proxy for party at times, you know, that's, I think, something to talk about. But you're absolutely right. It is Republicans who want these statutes. It's a Republican legislature that put it up there. It's the Republican Party that intervened. And it's Democrats who are opposing it and challenging these things. Absolutely. Sure. And so with kind of that backdrop now, the case, the argument isn't so much about whether what's happening here is okay, but at a broader level, 
how it is we're supposed to judge these Section 2 claims. So coming out of the argument, what do we see as the potential standards that the justices might use going forward to apply in these cases? Boy, you know, I have to say argument was a little bit all over the map. I don't know, I don't know what, <laughs> what your thoughts were. Uh, and I, in some ways, it's even tougher when they're when they're moving serially on the phone. But yeah, I, I think there's no question that uh, you know, Justice Kavanaugh summed it up pretty late in the argument, I think, in a, in a helpful way. Uh, it seems like there are two polar positions one could have reading different parts of the statute. So Section 2A uh, speaks only of results. That was the House bill, of course. Uh, and that strongly supports uh, a position that any disproportionate impact would be problematic uh, under the statute. Of course, the Dole Compromise meant that Section 2B uh, was added to the statute, and that speaks uh, of opportunity, and a polar position on that would be, uh, as was suggested in Mr. Carvin's brief, that time, place, and manner restrictions uh, that our race neutral uh, provide equal opportunity. And so I think they were looking for some kind of middle ground. Justice Kagan said, you know, the more we argue, the less sure I am about the distance between your positions. Right? <laughs> but at some point, like we look behind opportunity to, to see differences in effect. But but we want to find a significant effect with the kind of language the court kept coming up with, you know, some kind of effect that's so significant. And maybe that's looking at the totality of the circumstances, like Attorney General Brnovich was talking about, not just mm -hmm. how this one rule, but how this one rule plays into the whole system. Or, or maybe it's going to be a little bit more about whether or not it's targeting a tool that, that a particular racial group might use disproportionately. It, it, it's not clear how the court is going, but I think they're looking at something about that beyond just opportunity, but, but limiting how much we look at the effect it has on a racial group. But even if we even if we go to the middle ground of totality of the circumstances, right, um, that's not really going to create a, cr a clear <laughs> rule, right? And so we saw um, Justice Sotomayor get into it a little bit about uh, the meaning of the totality of the circumstances. Counsel, the test requires an examination of the totality of the circumstances. Can you seriously argue that the reason for why you did something isn't part of that test? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, let me ask this. All this argument is about the standard, but why does the standard matter if people are just going to apply it the way they want to anyway to come down to the result that they want? <laughs> so cynical. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I mean so I think about, um, so we can, I mean, this isn't a, a redistricting case, but the redistricting cases are useful. In 1986, the Supreme Court famously came out with Thornburg versus Jingles, and it was the first attempt to provide some contours to what totality of the circumstances means in Section 2, which is in the text of the statute and not helpful for judges, right? what that means for drawing districts. And the court came up with, you know, it kind of made up a three-part test. It drew from a series of factors that... Um, a Senate report had developed as potentially relevant. And I think members of the court sort of expressed different kinds of comfort levels thinking about what circumstances it would add or provide guidance to the lower courts about. Again, I think Justice Sotomayor was emphasizing more of the socioeconomic disparities. Justice Alito was pretty hostile to that uh, as, as saying it would be applicable in, in basically every case. 
um, just as Kavanaugh had, had alluded to, well, there's circumstances like what bipartisan commissions like the Carter-Baker Commission came up with, or a circumstance might be whether or not this is a statute commonplace in other states and, and sort of its frequency and use. Um, I mean, but there is some truth to your point, which is if you have the text of the statute that already says totality of the circumstances, <laughs> whatever the court's guidance is going to give is going to provide uh, ample flexibility for lower courts and for litigants desiring what they want to do in terms of pursuing and challenging these statutes going forward. Yeah, I was going to say your redistricting example showed that the Supreme Court you know, really good at setting those clear standards and avoiding <laughs> those cases coming well, back up. I, I mean, court. in some ways, uh, like uh, <laughs> redistricting in terms of majority-minority district has been in some ways pretty straightforward. Um, at times, some states have been a little more ham-handed in how they've approached it, <laughs> but, but there has been some guidance. Um, I think people wonder, was that within the statute? It provided some clarity and how much was that Was that sort of sticking to the text of the statute? But, but, but you're right. It when you have a totality of the circumstances, um, it's never going to go away before the Supreme Court. And so looking at the two standards here, there were four lawyers arguing, saying at least nominally four different things. I'm wondering if it makes sense to kind of home in on the two Republican sides, given that we have a Republican appointed majority, maybe it's going to be inclined to side somewhere over there at the end. We had uh, Michael Carvin of Jones Day arguing call it the more extreme position or the more aggressive position in favor of Republicans for the RNC. And then you had the attorney general, uh, Brnovich himself arguing. And so wondering within those two positions, how those are going to play out. Cause we saw, it was really interesting, especially with Carvin, it seemed he either walked back his position or in some ways exposed how maybe it won't work or how some justice might be uncomfortable with it. So just even in that sort of intra-Republican dispute, how do you see that playing out? Yeah, I, so I, I think Brnovich definitely had more of the, the persuasive authority on the court. I think Carvin had some real trouble addressing Justice Kagan's hypotheticals about how his test would play out uh, in terms of equal opportunity. Um, and even late in the argument, when Justice Barrett gave him an opportunity to save himself and say, well, I, don't you really mean this? He, he was walking back some of his positions. So I don't know that he did any favors for his position at our oral argument. Whereas General Brnovich really kept coming back to, especially when Justice Kagan was pressing a series of hypotheticals. What if there's uh, polling places only at um, country clubs where black voters have to travel 10 times further. Like, is that is that something that provides less opportunity? And, and Attorney General Brnovich kept coming back to, like, we can't just look at one policy. We look at the effect it has in the legislative scheme as a whole, how the voters actually participate and what other kinds of tools are available at their disposal. And I think that's something that the justices, that a majority is going to want to gravitate toward, right? To be thinking about not the sort of picking off election laws one at a time, but thinking about how they fit in with the whole context, in the whole context of the state's opportunities. And that's going to be harder for plaintiffs to show um, and might require a kind of record about what's happened in the past. Um, but I think is also, you know, a little bit more consistent when you're dealing with like equal opportunity. We think about equal opportunity as sort of voting, not casting an out-of-precinct vote and having it count. And so I think if, if the court is moving toward that more holistic view, 
I think it would be Attorney General Brnovich position that would be more persuasive. So um, we're almost out of time. Uh, we promised you we wouldn't keep you too long. Um, but one question I had is that um, this case, the parties in this case, not only are there a lot of them, but they don't look like the normal parties we see in these disputes. Is that right? I mean, we have the RNC, the DNC, and then Arizona on both on two sides of this issue, right? Um, what is going on here? And is there any chance that the court might just throw away this case and, you know, on uh, technicality? Yeah, well, there was a little bit of uh, discussion about the Republican Party's involvement in the case and standing, um, but but uh, and and I, th there's a possibility they wouldn't be involved. But I think the state's interest is still going to be there. But you're right. I mean, th this you know it, it it's a, a case about race in theory, but it's not being brought by sort of the the, the typical sort of voting rights groups that typically seek out protections for racial minority voters, right? It's it's being brought by the Democratic National Committee. And in terms of the defense, yeah, you have the state defending itself, but then the Republican National Committee is getting in saying, no, we're just as interested in this. So it is, it feels like it's a partisan dispute wrapped up in a racial dispute. And I think that's one of the things that's a little bit unusual procedurally. And then, yeah, we're, we're in this situation where, you know, the Secretary of State is not defending the position <laughs> that the legislature put forward. And I think this is symptomatic. I mean, we saw this throughout the 2020 election where there's just a lot of interbranch fighting within governments right now in state governments, um, where if it's a Republican attorney general and a Democratic secretary of state or a Republican legislature and a Democratic governor, uh, we're seeing a lot of this tension bubbling up in litigation and inconsistency and sort of articulating a state's position. And so that makes it tricky, but I think, I, I, I don't think the court is going to throw it out on a technicality. I think they're going to provide some more guidance and, and I'm more convinced after oral argument than before that they will do that. Hmm. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for trying to uh, figure out what the court's going to do. I do think in the new format, I think you mentioned this, where the justices each have, you know, dedicated time to talk to each advocate, that it's harder to really know exactly where they're going because, you know, they ask hard questions of everybody because why not? They have the time, right? Yeah, they have a fixed two minutes and they have Justices Kagan and Alito each seem to have a list of hypotheticals they need to march through as rapidly as possible. So, Yep. Um, I, I will enjoy getting back into the courtroom and seeing those two go at it in person. So, But thank you very much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Um, well, that was helpful. Just to know that just to know that I wasn't the only one who was totally lost during oral arguments as to what they were going to do. Um, one thing I really liked, which I think is going to be useful for me in the future, um, I saw someone uh, mention that Justice Kagan uh, came up with the politest way to tell someone to shut up during oral arguments. So um, we'll play it here and then you could just, you know, you could take the hit next time I say that's helpful. Okay, how about, how about this one? Uh, that's helpful. That's helpful, Mr. Carvin. Well, that's helpful, Kimberly. Thank you. I knew you would say that. I knew it. That's helpful, too. <laughs> Make sure to tune in next week when we take a deep dive into the upcoming March sitting. And one more thing. Don't forget to check us out on TikTok if you're there to get some more Supreme Court news there. Go check it out. Until then, thanks for listening. Yeah, that's helpful. Thanks for listening. My name is David Schultz, and I'm here to announce On the Merits, a new podcast from Bloomberg Law that brings you everything you need to know about the biggest legal stories of the week, coupled with smart interviews and analysis on a variety of topics, such as the 
incoming Biden administration's judicial priorities. So I think diversity is, is kind of the watchword here. We'll also keep our eyes on the Supreme Court. Now everyone is on Breyer watch. We're all watching to see when or if Justice Breyer is going to step down. You'll hear voices and perspectives from across the legal industry, including reporters and editors, attorneys, legal scholars, general counsel. But lest you think this podcast is all just news you can use, from time to time we stumble on a court docket or legal opinion that, for whatever reason, just piques our interest. And he started this opinion, 224th of it, citing the Passchendaele battle is one of the largest battles of World War One. Um, that seems like a strange way to start off an opinion on corporate law. You can download On the Merits wherever you get your podcasts.